emulate Christ to one another and also to the world. That's what we are called to do. So when we get together, we are getting together in the name of Jesus. So we want to have that same heart, that same love, that same mercy. And then we don't want to just box it into these four walls and then just keep it here. But we will also want to show that to the rest of the world. So in light of that, I started thinking, what exactly is the heart of Jesus? What exactly is the heart of Jesus? And that's why the title you see up there is the heart of Jesus. And um, one of the things that I repented from is we've been talking and ever since I've been here since September um, and even before then, um, much doctrinal theological conversations, um, just preaching the Bible. But what does the Bible teach? Doctrine just simply means teaching. Um, but more towards geared towards like a theological knowledge, which has, by the way, it's all benefits. We need to know what we believe in um, or who we believe in. And we need to know what Jesus taught so that we can actually tell when somebody tell, tells us something that Jesus didn't teach. We can tell the truth from the fake, right? It has its benefits, but much of that honestly has a potential to puff us up and to make us to make our love grow cold even, because we know you have so much head knowledge about what is the theology of baptism? What is the theology of this? Or the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of that. And then you, you puff, you, we can fill our heads up with so much information, and we, we might even be able to regurgitate it and say it out loud, but it doesn't connect with our heart. So we're just walking around with our head up in the cloud, and forget all the little small-minded or uh, not as spiritually mature as we are, people that can't say more than two-syllable words about the Bible. Like those people, you know, they're, they're down here. I, I know what Christology is. You know, I know what hematology is. You know, and I know what the doctrine of sin is or what the doctrine of anthropology. Okay, what is the biblical anthropology of that? Like... Those things are essential. We need to have them. But if they are not connected with the heart of Jesus, if, if it doesn't, if it only causes us to puff ourselves up and, and then turn our nose up, and if it causes our love to grow cold, or maybe even create a hypersensitivity to like non-essential issues, um, it becomes, as one commentator I was reading, it becomes a mechanical orthodoxy, right? Like we're going to do the things, but it's just going to be mechanical. We're just going through the motions. You come, you sit, and you go. You stand up, and you go, and you sit down, and you, the, the worship team comes up. You stand up, and the words come up on the, on the screen. You sing them, and then you sit down, and then somebody, some strange man would stand behind the pulpit and then say a few things, and maybe you agree with some of them. So to some of them, you say amen to some of them. You're like, ah, I don't know about that. And then you just go home and then you do it again. It just becomes mechanical because there's no, the heart and the head is not connected. And Jesus himself, actually, if you turn with me to um, Revelation chapter 2. This is... Um, 
start in chapter 1, I mean verse 1, sorry. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? And if, if you have the Bible like mine, you see the words are in red, which means Jesus is actually the one that's speaking here. The words from him who holds the seven stars in the right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. Here's the church in Ephesus. We know about the church of Ephesus because we have a letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Right? So he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear it with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So far, so good. They're, they know the doctrine. They know the false teaching versus the, the, the true teaching. They can, they, can, they can spot a fake very well, and they don't, they don't tolerate that. They call it as it is. Right? He says, you, you guys are doing good in this sense. Look at what verse 4. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You had abandoned the love you have had at first. It sounds like the church in Ephesus was, was really the, theologically and doctrinally sound, and yet the heart, their love towards Christ and the love towards one another seems to have been lacking and the Lord says I have this to hold against you and he gives them an opportunity to repent and this is again talking about the season of repentance that the Lord has me in really that's where we needed to we I believe we need to focus more of our time as we gather here together because I know last time we we met together we looked at the the hallmarks of the gospel and you know, the gospel is clear. The gospel is um, it's assured by God and all those seven hallmarks that we looked at, which was, which was great and which is biblical, which is true. But unless we have it and, and attached to the heart of Christ, we are in danger of being like the church of Ephesus. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be told what I'm doing wrong after, I'm, after I've done wrong. If I can correct it ahead of time, if we if we can just at the outset, don't forget this love. Let's let's be in the heart of Jesus and let's have the heart of Jesus to one another. Let's not abandon our first love. Let's continue. Let's begin with love and continue with love. If we are if we can actually do that, we're going to be way way ahead of the curve. And 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 um, in that sense, so from this conviction, and in order not to leave our first love. Uh, and if we have left it in, in a way, in some way, to return to that first love, I wanted us today to look at the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there's, there's book giveaways up, up there if you, if you need a Bible or a couple of uh, different books. One of the books that you would find back there is um, Gentle and Lowly. And in that book, the author talks about how if Jesus were to have a website, which I kind of modified it and said if he had a, a social media page, in his bio, he will have this. Or in the website, when you go to About Me and you hit the drop down, this is what you would find. 
So with that in mind, let's turn to the gospel according to Matthew. That's the main text that I want us to look at today. And chapter 11. And we're going to start in verse 28 and read through verse 30. Very familiar passage for most of us, if not all of us. If it's not, then here it is. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here it is. Here's. Here's the about me in the bio section, what you would find about Jesus. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Can you see where, like, about me or a bio page of Jesus? And you're on the drop down, you go to the bios, and he says, Oh, Jesus. The Christ about me. I am gentle and lowly at heart. That is the heart of Jesus. And it's so amazing that we got to sing the song about this good and gracious king who is also lowly and gentle at heart because it just, just leads the way to what we want to observe in the text that we just read. So just a few observations. I'm not going to hold you long. Few observations in this text is the first observation. The first thing you see is the invitation. You see his invitation, and it's it's a contrast. There's a stark contrast of his invitation in light of what has been happening before verse twenty-eight. If you notice, if you read up, and really the whole chapter of verse, uh, the whole chapter of chapter eleven, he's actually talking about how people rejected the gospel. They rejected. The, the gospel message that, that John the Baptist preached. He was out in the wilderness and he's saying, repent for the kingdom is, uh, of God is at hand. And they rejected it. And then he looks at his generation and he says, this generation, you guys are so corrupt. Now John came, not eating and not drinking, and he was out in the wilderness uh, looking all crazy and eating locusts and honey. And you guys said he was possessed. And then I came eating and drinking. And now you guys are telling me that I am not doing the right thing either. So you reject me. And then he goes and says, he calls these cities uh, that, that the people would have been familiar with. And he says, if I did the miracle, if you saw the miracle in this other cities and you still didn't repent, woe to you. And so he warns them. But in light of this warning, he turns around and thanks God. He said, Father, I'm so, so glad that you have hidden this, this reality, this heart of a gentle and lowly Savior and Lord and good and gracious King from the people that are learned, from the elite of society. 
and you've opened the eyes of really infants is what he, the word he uses. You know, you think of an infant, they don't know anything. And if you're really asking in light of what he's saying, the reason why you believe, that why we believe is because he's opened our eyes to, to his truth. It's not because we have some kind of elite status as a, as a being. I know everybody in here is most everybody, if not all of you, are probably more smarter than I am in terms of intelligence and intellectual ability. We got people going to UNC and UVA and stuff like that. I couldn't even get in. I got into a little small school in the middle of nowhere. You don't, you don't even know where it is, right? But he didn't, he didn't use that as a criteria to save us. And he just chose by grace whom he would save, and he opens our eyes. And in light of that, he says, come. He invites us. That is an emphatic, and it's a personal invitation too. He doesn't just say, come to everybody. It's individual people that he calls. Come, come, Al, come, aman. Right? Come, Manny, even. So that's the first thing I wanted us to observe, this emphatic personal call to come to him. But who does he call? Who does he call? The second thing I want us to, to observe together is the condition of the called. Well, it says, come all. So all means all in the Greek. I looked it up so you don't have to. All right. Yeah, some of you know that, that reoccurring joke. But the rest of you, it's okay. You're, I'll be here all week. Type. Um, but yeah, he says all should come. But look at the following criteria. Come all who are weary and heavy laden, right? These are the people that, that are weary and that are heavy laden. That's, those are not words that we use on, on everyday text, right? They don't even, I don't even think they have emojis for those words yet. But what exactly does he mean when he says, if you're weary? That notion is that this actively in a continuous state of stress and strain. If you are tired of actively, this is what Jesus is saying, actively going and moving and moving and doing and doing and doing and doing, and then that's just making you so tired. Right? Think of a, uh, think of a, a hamster wheel of a lifestyle that we live, really. It's relatable to us as well. We're just continuously doing something. From the moment we wake up until the moment we fall asleep. Something that's going on that's keeping our minds and our hearts and our bodies on the move, on the move. And then time comes. That kind of weariness. You're so tired. And what he's talking to is how work salvation, that is be saved by what you do. Obey the Ten Commandments. And then celebrate all the feast holidays. And then come to church every Sunday. And then don't miss adult fellowship. 
right? And then Bible study is essential. And then if you don't spend 15 minutes every morning and 15 minutes a night spending time in prayer and with the word, and then don't even listen to any kind of secular music, you've got to listen to hymns, hymns, classic, that's it. And not even the hymns of the, the heretics. We don't, we don't want to do that. No, the real ones. So you got to find them. you got to look them up. you just got to work and work and work and work and work. I mean, I'm tired of just saying it, let alone trying to apply it. Jesus says, if you're tired of that, come to me. Not only you're tired, but also are you burdened by it? Now that's something that we do, right? The things that we're actively pursuing, you know, the education, you know, you're, if you're in high school, you just finished high school, you got to go to college. Four years, you got to get that degree. After that degree, if that degree pays off in four years, then you get a good job. But if it doesn't, then you got to go get your master's. If it doesn't get the master's, then um, you might not make the American dream, right? And then once you get that, then you got to get your husband or your wife. You got to get that house. Nice white picket fence. Two and a half children. I don't know how that works out. I have no idea how that math works, right? That's the average. Like, I, I do not have a half child, and, right? <laughs> and then maybe even a dog, hypoallergenic maybe. So you don't have to clean up after the shedding, right? And maybe you're not a dog person. You got to get a cat. Much more low maintenance. You don't have to do too much, right? You got to get that. And then you got you to gotta have that picture-perfect family that you're going to post everywhere. And then you got to travel in the summers. You got to go to Belize, you know, Cancun. You know, you got to go to Europe and have all of that. And then you just got to keep doing these things. And it's tiresome. Because it's never ending. When, when does it end? What is the end goal? Nothing. It, the world doesn't provide any of that, but it just keeps adding more and more expectations on you. You got to look at your bank account. How many zeros is it? How many commas? Right? I like to think of my bank account as an integer. If you know, you know. Right? Because the integer goes both ways. But it just keeps adding and adding and it just becomes a burden. And you're kind of like, you hit a certain time and you look up like, how am I going to get rid of this? Even spiritually. Doctrine, 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 theology, 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 doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And then you're like, I'm so, it's so much to keep straight. Just to be accepted by God, just to, to receive salvation, it's way too much. Because this one is telling me this, and that one is telling me that. I don't know which one it is, and the Bible is right there, and I don't know. Jesus says, come to me. If you are going through what I just got done explaining, if this is your condition, if you're tired through overuse, or if you're 
burdened and a load and a burden is placed on you, which is too much to carry, come. Thirdly, there's a promise. So he invites them. He tells us who he invites. And then he gives us such an amazing promise. He says it twice. It's a sure promise. I will give you rest. Not you will eventually earn the right to rest. I will give you rest. You will be given a gift, a personal guarantee from him to you. All you have to do is just come. This abiding rest. Not just rest physically, but this deep abiding rest inside the soul. And that part of it is, part of it is realized when you come to salvation. There's a, there's a part that's realized. Like you actually own that rest. You know that this is not your final destiny. You know whatever you're going through, whatever is putting uh, burdens on you, whatever is loading you up, whatever is making you tired, and the, the, the fighting and the, the anxiety and the fear and the stress and everything else that's going on, you know once you come to Christ, that's not, that's not it. There's more to it than that. So you can actually find rest in your soul knowing that now, but then there's one to be realized. There's this rest that comes with joy of salvation now, and there's a rest that is yet to be realized in this full revelation of his kingdom. When he comes back, or when he calls us home, on the other side of this life, there is so much rest. He's already realized it. And he's given us a foretaste of that. This is what we're doing, right? We get a little glimpse of it here so that we are constantly reminding one another of, hey, this is what rest would look like. Just fellowshipping, loving one another, laughing and smiling and talking about things that actually mean something. And then knowing that nothing that can come, nothing that can be said is said from a place of hate or uh, or, or a place of um, disunity or disloyal, uh, being disloyal and none of that. It's actually coming from a fellow brother and sister and just this, this unity of faith and the spirit and, and the love that there is. We get a glimpse of that every time we come together for fellowship, but that there's even a greater reality of that rest where there will be no tears, no sorrow, it just be us and Him. Full fellowship. Enjoying the rest that He has purchased for us. That's His promise. That's the promise that we have. The promise that is realized and the promise that is yet to come. Two more observations of this text. The next observation, the fourth one is... There's this imperative that he, there's this exhortation, there's this call, however, that 
that he gives us, come, if you're in that state of being overwhelmed, and I promise I'll give you rest. But as you come, he says, lift up the yoke. Take my yoke. It's not the egg yoke, by the way. But this is this active exhortation by Jesus to actually to carry, to lift up, to, to take his yoke. A couple of things I was talking to a um, couple of brothers earlier, and I was telling them how I, I get so caught up in word studies when I'm like preparing and studying the Bible. I'm like, what does a yoke mean? Right? Because what, what exactly does a yoke mean? I can... I can Kind of go back to where I was born and raised and kind of see the yoke that they put between two, um, two oxen and then they use that for farming. Right? Is that what it means? Is that what they would have heard? The people listening to Jesus talk? Because that was actually a common practice as well. They put two animals together for, for labor and that's, that's, they were just yoked together. They, they're paired together by, that, by the use of that yoke. Another way to, um, another definition of this word yoke actually is, this was a euphemism, a, a figure of speech of saying, come follow me and be my student or be my disciple. So someone in that time in, in first century uh, Roman Empire would come along and he's a philosopher and say, hey, come take my yoke. That means it's come follow me, see what I do and do what I do, learn from me and all those things. And I both ways really make sense in terms of what Jesus is exhorting us to do. Come yoke yourself to me. Come take up my yoke. Come hitch your wagon, so to speak, to me. And come be my disciple. So imagine you're coming and you're, you're hitching your wagon to Jesus. And wherever Jesus goes, you, you go. Not the other way around, right? Or that could, that could work as well, the other way around. Wherever you go, Jesus goes. Because you yoke together. But he's also calling us to be his disciples. Another, um, yet another... Um, definition that I saw was this was to show an absolute dependence of, of gift, the submission, like don't put a yoke of slavery over top of you, so don't be a slave, another way that uh, Paul uses it in Galatians. But either way you look at it, it's this intimate, close relationship or attachment that we have with Jesus. What Jesus is saying is hitch your life to mine. When he says, take my yoke, he's saying, hitch your life, all of it, to my life. And as you do that, there's a second portion, uh, portion of that. He says, learn from me. Learn by experience. Gain knowledge of who Jesus is. Not just about me. Not just truths about Jesus. He died at 33 and a half. He was born to Joseph and Mary. When he was a kid, he had to flee to Egypt. These are just facts that we know about Jesus. He wants to know. 
He wants us to have this deep relationship and deep knowledge about who he is from himself. Learn from me. Not just about me, but really know me. And really know me from me. That's what we're exhorted to do. So you come because you're weary and you're tired and you have this promise of rest that's given to you and you hit your life to Jesus and then you learn about him, not only about him, but you learn from him about who he is. So who is he really? Which is the last observation that I want us to make together, which comes to the heart of the matter. His identity. It is presented in such a way that his being, it's, I, I just keep going back to that analogy that the author used, right? Because I couldn't think of it myself, so I'm just going to use somebody else's. Give credit, though. That bio, like, who is he? Who is Jesus? What is in his heart? His heart is meek. His heart is gentle. See, Jesus didn't say, I'm harsh and brutal. I'm brutal and proud. Come to me. Versus, I'm gentle and lowly at heart. Which one is more inviting? You know, just the brutally honest person, you know that no matter what, hey, I don't care how it makes you feel, I'm just going to tell you what it is, and I'm just going to, it doesn't matter what kind of words I use, it doesn't matter what your condition is, and then I do that because, you know, I got what I got, and I'm proud about it. He didn't come boasting and saying that. He could have, by the way, just for consideration. And he would have been fully justified. Because at the end of the day, he is divine, he is God, he is perfect, he is holy. There's no, there's no sin in him. So he could just come up and just say, hey, man, say harsh things. Have that kind of heart. But he doesn't. He didn't say, I am brutal and arrogant. But much of our society actually celebrates arrogance and pride and this brutal honesty, this harshness. You know, we live in a doggy, doggy dog world. It's not doggy dog, by the way. Some people say it's, it's a dog eat dog world, right? So you just got to hustle, get it by any means necessary, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm just going to climb this ladder no matter who I'm climbing on. I'm going to do this, whatever. That, that kind of like hustler mentality that we need to have. And then just be confident, be proud, find self, whatever. And just in a world that is like that, this heart of Jesus, which we as a church, seek to embody, which really saves us. It's because he had this kind of heart. 
It's because he was meek. It's because he is humble. This language of tender care, like he cared for where we were. I don't know where you were when you got saved. I don't know where you were, what condition you were you were in when, when he found you. But I know for sure that there was this tender, gentle care like you would hold a newborn baby. He cared for your heart because that is his heart. He wasn't harsh. He didn't just handle it all kinds of ways. He understands. He knew where you were. He met you where you were. And then whatever your brokenness, whatever your sin, whatever condition you were, that tender care. And he's going to say, well, since I did that for you, now come on. He's continually humble. He's continually meek. He's not arrogant with us. Now that doesn't say Jesus is mushy, by the way. Right? <laughs> In terms of like, you know, Jesus. It's the same Jesus, by the way. This is the same Jesus that went into the temple and stopped flipping tables. And then made a whip real quick. I don't even know how you do that. And then started whipping people at the temple because of his anger. It's the same Jesus. If you read the the first part of um, chapter 11 in Matthew, you see him being like stern. So that doesn't mean that this is this mushy, you know, it's always kind of like. I, you can do whatever, and I'm always going to be here as your crutch type of Jesus. But wherever you are, there's this tender care, this humility about him. And Paul tells us and gives us a great vivid picture in Philippians 2 about how he did not take equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became like the creator, imagine became a part of creation. What level of humility that would take? Like one of us. Being made in a kind of, in, a, in the likeness of mankind. And then suffering death. Even death on the cross, Paul says. That kind of humility. One commentary writes it like this. He is a lowly mission and his heart is fixed only on God. He has a lowly mission and his heart is fixed only on God. For this very reason, he can invite with full authority to come. Because his heart was fully fixed on God and God's plan. In God's agenda, and he was focused on this lowly mission. He's always submitted himself under the authority of, of, of his father. And that's his heart that he shows us. Then, with full authority, he invites, come. That's the heart as a church. We ought to embody.
That's what we need to strive to reflect his image and his heart. And knowing that this is not done by our strength, by the way, but through, through him who makes his yoke easy and his burden is light. Why is his yoke easy and his burden is light? Would you consider that? So everybody's yoke is heavy and, and it presses you down, it weighs you down, it makes you tired. And it's not easy, it's hard, it's difficult. But his isn't because he is at work today. He is the one who is doing the work in us and through us and for us even. That doesn't discount our responsibility. Don't hear me say that. We're responsible to, to, to take the yoke and, and be with him and go wherever he goes. But because his spirit is alive in us, because the Holy Spirit is in every single believer, working, we can actually rest knowing that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, knowing that only in him can we or anyone ever find rest. If you're really, 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 really seeking the place of rest, it's found only in him who invites us who promises rest for our souls. And I really wanted us to, to just marvel at his heart and to not lose sight of his heart and to hitch our hearts to his heart as we come together and as we do the rest of the, the, the time that we have together, whatever we do, we should always not lose focus of Jesus' heart. His heart should be at the center of our hearts in everything that we do, whether we're studying the Bible, whether we're singing, whether we're eating, what is it, charcuterie, right? I said it right? Yeah. I learned that last two weeks ago. I thought he was cursing me out, and I was just like, yeah. Um, but apparently it's not, it's not a, a curse word. That's it. Whatever we're doing, whether we're breaking bread or crackers and cheese together, this heart, this embodiment of Jesus, the lowly and the gentle and the gracious and the good king, that is what we ought to embody. And he would work this out. He promised. And I don't know about you guys. I break promises. Try not to, but I've broken promises. I know of one person who's never broken a promise, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he promises to give us rest, he will give us rest. And that's what we need to embody, this glorious vision as we look at his heart. Let's pray. Father, our God, so thankful that you would deem such undeserving people of your grace. We're so thankful, Lord of heaven and earth, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to our need of a Savior.
and you would open our eyes to look at Jesus and to come to Jesus, to respond to his call of repentance and faith in him. We're so thankful you've done it for us, Lord. Not because we were deserving, but because of your grace and your mercy. For you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. Our world constantly refuses to acknowledge who you are. Even thinks that we are foolish for doing the things that we're doing or believing in you. But what you have hidden to them, you have revealed it to us. Help us grasp this with a childlike faith. Because this is your will, Lord. Lord, as you have given all things to the Lord Jesus Christ, and only through him we may know you as Father and as God, we come to you so that you would reveal yourself even more clear to our hearts, that you would show us who, who you are, what you are, what your heart is, so that marveling at that reality, we can be conformed into your image, that we can be more godly, we can be more loving, we can be more gospel-centered, we can be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you do this for us and in us and through us individually and as a fellowship and as a church so that your name can be glorified and Christ can be honored and the work of your Holy Spirit can be evident among us and to the rest of the world. We ask and we trust that you do these things for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.